Welcome to the AI Alignment Podcast. I'm Lucas Perry. Today, we have an episode with Andres Gomez Emilson and David Pierce on identity. This episode is about identity from the ontological, epistemological, and phenomenological perspectives. In less jargony language, we discuss identity from the fundamental perspective of what actually exists, of how identity arises given functional world models and self-models in biological organisms, and of the subjective or qualitative experience of self or identity as a feature of consciousness. Given these angles on identity, we discuss what identity is, the formation of identity in biological life via evolution, why identity is important to explore and its ethical implications and implications for game theory, and we directly discuss its relevance to the AI alignment problem and the project of creating beneficial AI. I think the question of how is this relevant to AI alignment to be a very useful one to explore here in the intro. So I'll go ahead and do that for a little bit. The AI alignment problem can be construed in the technical limited sense of the question of how to program AI systems to understand and be aligned with human values, preferences, goals, ethics, and objectives. In a limited sense, this is strictly a technical problem that supervenes upon research in machine learning, AI, computer science, psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, etc. I like to approach the problem of aligning AI systems from a broader and more generalist perspective. So in light of this, I do so through a broader view of AI alignment that takes into account the problems of AI governance, philosophy, AI ethics, and that reflects on the context in which the technical side of the problem will be taking place. The motivations of humanity and the human beings engaged in the AI alignment process, the ingredients required for success, and other civilization level questions on our way, hopefully, to beneficial superintelligence. It is from both of these perspectives that I feel exploring the question of identity is important. AI researchers have their own identities, and those identities factor into their lived experience of the world, their motivations, and their ethics. In fact, the same is, of course, true of policymakers and anyone in positions of power to influence the alignment process. So being aware of commonly held identity models and views is important for understanding their consequences and functions in the world as more and more powerful AI systems begin to be developed and deployed. From a macroscopic perspective, identity has evolved over the past 4.5 billion years on Earth and surely will continue to do so in both AI systems themselves and in the humans which hope to wield that power. Some humans may wish to merge with the AI, others may simply be content with passing away or death, and other humans may wish to be upgraded or uploaded in some way. Questions of identity are also crucial to this process of relating to one another and to AI systems in a rapidly evolving world where what it means to be human is quickly changing, where copies of digital minds or AIs can be made trivially, and the boundary between what we conventionally call the self and the world begins to dissolve and break down in new ways, 
challenging our commonly held intuitions and demanding new understandings of ourselves and of identity in particular. I also want to highlight an important thought from this podcast that any actions we wish to take with regards to improving or changing understandings of lived experience, of identity, must be sociologically relevant, or such interventions simply risk being irrelevant. This means understanding what is reasonable for human beings to be able to update their minds with and accept over certain periods of time, and also the game-theoretic implications of certain views of identity and their functions in society and civilization. This conversation is thus an attempt to broaden the discussion on these issues outside of what is normally discussed, and to flag this area as something worthy of further consideration. For those not familiar with David Pierce or Andres Gomez Emilson, David is a co-founder of the World Transhumanist Association, rebranded Humanity Plus, and is a prominent figure within the transhumanism movement in general. You might know him from his work on The Hedonistic Imperative, a book which explores our moral obligation to work towards the abolition of suffering in all sentient life through technological intervention. Andres is a consciousness researcher at the Qualia Research Institute and is also the co-founder and president of the Stanford Transhumanist Association. He has a master's in computational psychology from Stanford. The Future of Life Institute is a nonprofit, and this podcast is funded and supported by listeners like you. So if you find what we do on this podcast to be important and beneficial, please consider supporting the podcast by donating at futureoflife.org donate. If you'd like to be a regular supporter, please consider a monthly subscription donation to make sure that we can continue our efforts into the future. These contributions make it possible for us to bring you conversations like these and to develop the podcast further. You can also follow us on your preferred listening platform by searching for us directly or following the links on the page for this podcast found in the description. And with that, here's my conversation with Andres Gomez Emilson and David Pierce. So I just want to start off with some quotes here that I think would be useful. So the last podcast that we had was with Yuval Noah Harari and Max Tegmark. And one of the points that Yuval really emphasized was the importance of self-understanding, questions like, who am I, what am I, in the age of technology. Yuval said, quote, get to know yourself better. It's maybe the most important thing in life. We haven't really progressed much in the last thousands of years. And the reason is that, yes, we keep getting this advice, but we don't really want to do it. He goes on to say that, quote, especially as technology will give us all, at least some of us, more and more power. The temptations of naive utopias are going to be more and more irresistible. And I think the really most powerful check on these naive utopias is really getting to know yourself better. So in search of getting to know ourselves better, I want to explore this question of identity with both of you. So to start off, what is identity? One problem is that we have more than one conception of identity. There is the strict logical sense, what philosophers call the indiscernibility of identicals. If A equals B, then anything true of A is true of B. In one sense, that's trivially true. But when it comes to something like personal identity, it just doesn't hold water at all. One is a different person from your namesake who went to bed last night. And it's very easy to shift between these two different senses of identity, or one might speak of the United States. 
in what sense is the United States the same nation in 2020 as it was in 1975? It's interest relative. Yeah, and to go a little bit deeper on that, I would make the distinction, as David made, between ontological identity, like what fundamentally is actually going on in the physical world, in instantiated reality. But then there's conventional identity, definitely the idea of continuing to exist from one moment to another as a human and also countries and so on. And then there's also phenomenological identity, which is kind of our intuitive common sense view of what we are and basically what are the conditions that will allow us to continue to exist. We can go into more detail, but yeah, the phenomenological notion of identity is an incredible can of worms because there's so many different ways of experiencing identity and all of them have their own interesting idiosyncrasies. Most people tend to confuse the two. They tend to confuse ontological and phenomenological identity. And just as a simple example that I'm sure we will revisit in the future, when a person has, let's say, a ego dissolution or a mystical experience and they feel that they merge with the rest of the cosmos and they come out and say, oh, we're all one consciousness, that tends to be interpreted as some kind of grasp of an ontological reality. Whereas we could argue, in a sense, that that was just a shift in phenomenological identity, that your sense of self got transformed, not necessarily you actually directly merging with the cosmos in a literal sense. Although, of course, it might be very indicative of how conventional our sense of identity is if it can be modified so drastically in other states of consciousness. Right. And so let's just start with the ontological sense. How does one understand or think about identity from the ontological side? In order to reason about this, you need a shared frame of reference for what actually exists and the nature of a number of things, including the nature of time and space and memory. Because in the common sense view of time called presentism, where basically there's just the present moment, the past is a convenient construction and and the future is a fiction, useful in practical sense, but they don't literally exist. In that sense, this notion that A equals B in the sense of like, hey, you could modify what happens to A and that will automatically also modify what happens to B kind of makes sense. And you can perhaps think of identity as moving over time along with everything else. On the other hand, if you have a eternalist point of view, where basically you interpret the whole of space-time as just basically there, in their own coordinates in the multiverse, That kind of provides a different notion of ontological identity because each, in a sense, moment of experience is its own separate piece of reality. In addition, you also need to consider the question of connectivity, like in what way different parts of reality are connected to each other. And in a conventional sense, as you go from one second to the next, you continue to be connected to yourself in an unbroken stream of consciousness. And this has actually led some philosophers to hypothesize that the proper unit of identity is from the moment in which you wake up to the moment in which you go to sleep, because that's an unbroken chain of stream of consciousness. But from a scientific and philosophically rigorous point of view, it's actually difficult to make the case that our stream of consciousness is truly unbroken. And definitely, if you have a eternalist point of view on experience and on the nature of time, what you will instead see is from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, there's actually been an extraordinarily large amount of snapshots of discrete moments of experience. And in that sense, each of those individual moments of experiences 
would be its own ontologically separate individual. Now, one of the things that become kind of complicated with a kind of an eternalist account of time and identity is that you cannot actually change it. There's nothing you can actually do to A. So like that reasoning of if you do anything to A and A equals B, then the same will happen to B doesn't even actually apply in here because everything is already there. You cannot actually modify A any more than you can modify the number five. Yes, it's a rather depressing perspective in many ways, the eternalist view. If one internalizes it too much, it can lead to a sense of fatalism and despair. A lot of the time, it's probably actually best to think of the future as open. Okay, so this helps to clarify some of the ontological part of identity. Now, you mentioned this phenomenological aspect, and I want to say also the epistemological aspect of identity. Could you unpack those two and maybe clarify this distinction for me if you wouldn't parse it this way? But I guess I would say that the epistemological one is the models that human beings have about the world and about ourselves. It includes how the world is populated with a lot of different objects that have identity, like humans and planets and galaxies. And then we have our self-model, which is the model of our body and our space and social groups and who we think we are. And then there's the phenomenological identity, which is that subjective qualitative experience of self or the ego in relation to experience or where there's an identification with attention and experience. So could you unpack these two later senses? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, in a sense, you could have like an implicit self-model that doesn't actually become part of your consciousness, or it's, it's not necessarily something that you're explicitly rendering. You know, this goes on all the time. I mean, you've definitely, I'm sure, had the experience of riding a bicycle. And after a little while, you can kind of like almost do it without thinking. Of course, you're engaging with the process in a very embodied fashion, but you're not cognizing very much about it. And definitely you're not representing, let's say, your body state, or you're representing exactly what is going on in a cognitive way. It's all kind of implicit in the way in which you feel. And I would say that paints a little bit of a distinction between a self-model, which is ultimately functional. It has to do with, are you processing the information that you require to solve the task that involves modeling what you are in your environment and distinguishing it from the felt sense of, are you a person? Where are you? How are you located? And so on. The first one is the one that most of robotics and machine learning that have like an embodied component are really trying to get at. You just need the appropriate information processing in order to solve the task. They're not very concerned about, does this feel like anything or does it feel like a particular entity or a self to be that particular algorithm? Whereas, yeah, we're talking about the phenomenological sense of identity. Then, yeah, that's like very explicitly about how it feels like. And there's all kinds of ways in which a healthy, so to speak, sense of identity can be broken down in all sorts of interesting ways. There's many failure modes, <laughs> we, we can put it that way. One might argue, I mean, I, I suspect, for example, David Pierce might say this, <laughs> which is that our self-models, our, our implicit sense of self, because of, of the way in which it was brought up through Darwinian selection pressures, it's already extremely ill in some sense, at least from the point of view of it, it actually telling us something true and actually making us do something ethical. It has all sorts of problems. But it is definitely functional. I mean, you can anticipate being a person tomorrow and plan accordingly, leave messages to yourself by encoding them in memory. And yeah, this convenient sense of conventional identity, it's very natural for most people's experiences. I can briefly mention a couple of ways in which it can break down. 
One of them is depersonalization. It's a particular psychological disorder where one stops feeling like a person. And it might have something to do with basically not being able to synchronize with your bodily feelings in such a way that you don't actually feel embodied. You may feel kind of a disincarnate entity or just a witness experiencing a a human experience, but not actually being that person. Then you also have things such as empathogen-induced sense of uh, shared identity with others. If you take MDMA, you may feel that all of humanity is deeply connected or we're all part of the same essence of, of humanity in a very positive sense of identity, but perhaps not in a evolutionary adaptive sense. Finally, is people with a multiple personality disorder, where in a sense, they have like a very unstable sense of who they are. And sometimes it can be so extreme that there's kind of epistemological blockages from one sense of self to another. As neuroscientist uh, Donald Hoffman likes to say, fitness trumps truth. Each of us runs a world simulation, but it's not an impartial, accurate, faithful world simulation. I am at the center of a world simulation, the David Pearsocentric world simulation. I'm the kind of the hub of reality that follows me around. And of course, there are billions upon billions of other analogous examples too. Now, this is genetically extremely fitness enhancing, but it's systematically misleading. In that sense, I think Darwinian life is malware. So wrapping up here on these different aspects of identity, I just want to make sure that I have all of them here. Would you say that those are all of the aspects? One could add this distinction between type and token identity in that it'd be possible, let's say, from scratch to create a molecular duplicate of you. Is that person you? It's type identical, but it's not token identical. Oh, right. So I think I've heard this used in some other places as numerical distinction versus qualitative distinction. Is that right? Yeah, that's the same distinction, yeah. So unpacking here more about what identity is, let's talk about it purely as something that the world has produced. So what can we say about the evolution of identity and biological life? What is the efficacy of certain identity models in Darwinian evolution? I would say that self-models most likely have existed potentially since pretty early on in the evolutionary timeline. You may argue that in some sense, even a bacteria has like some kind of self-model. But again, a self-model is really just functional. The bacteria does need to know, at least implicitly, its size in order to be able to navigate its environment, follow chemical gradients and so on, not step on itself. But that's not the same, again, as a phenomenal sense of identity. And that one, I would strongly suspect, came uh, much later, perhaps with the advent of the first primitive nervous systems. That would be only if actually running that phenomenal model is giving you some kind of fitness advantage. One of the things that you will encounter with David and I is that we think that phenomenally bound experiences have a lot of computational properties. And in a sense, the reason why we're conscious has to do with the fact that unified moments of experience are doing computationally useful legwork. It comes when you merge implicit self-models in just the the functional sense together with the computational benefits of actually running a conscious system that perhaps for the first time in history, you will actually have a phenomenal self-model 
Now, I would suspect probably in the Cambrian explosion, this was already going on to some extent. All of these interesting evolutionary oddities that happened in the Cambrian explosion probably had like some kind of rudimentary sense of self. I would be skeptical that is going on, for example, in plants. One of the, the key reasons is that running a real-time world simulation in a conscious framework is very calorically expensive. Yes, it's a scandal. What, evolutionarily speaking, is consciousness for? I mean, what can a, a pea zombie not do? The perspective that Andres and I are articulating is that essentially what makes biological minds special is phenomenal binding. The capacity to run real-time, phenomenally bound world simulations, i.e. not just to be 86 billion discrete membrane-bound pixels of experience, but somehow an entire cross-modally matched real-time world simulation made up of individual objects somehow bound into a unitary self, the unity of perception, is extraordinarily computationally powerful and adaptive. Now, simply saying that it's extremely fitness-enhancing doesn't explain it, because something like telepathy would be uh, <laughs> extremely fitness-enhancing too, but it's physically impossible. But yes, how biological minds actually manage to run phenomenally bound world simulations is unknown. It would seem to be classically impossible. One way to appreciate just how advantageous non-psychotic phenomenal binding is, is to look at syndromes where it even partially breaks down. Simultanagnosia, where one can only see one object at once, or, or motion blindness, like kinetopsia, where you can't actually see moving objects, or florid schizophrenia. Now, just imagine those syndromes combined. Why aren't we just micro-experiential zombies? Do we have any interesting points here to look at in the evolutionary tree for where identity is substantially different from ape consciousness? Like if we look back at human evolution, it seems that it's given the apes and particularly our species a pretty strong sense of self. And that gives rise to much of our ape socialization and politics. So I'm wondering if there's anything else, like maybe insects or other creatures that have gone a different direction. And also if you guys might be able to speak a little bit on the formation of ape identity. Definitely, I think like the perspective of the selfish gene is pretty illuminating here. Nominally, our sense of identity is kind of the sense of one person, one mind. In practice, however, if you make sense of identity as well in terms of that which you want to defend or that which you consider worth preserving, you will see that people's sense of identity also extends to their family members. And of course, you know, with a neocortex and ability to create more complex associations, then you have crazy things like sense of identity being based on race or country of origin or other, you know, constructs like that, that are building on top of imports from the sense of, hey, the people who are familiar to you feel more like you. It's genetically adaptive to have that. And, and from the point of view of the selfish gene, genes that could recognize themselves in others and favor the existence of others that also share the same genes are more likely to reproduce. And that's called uh, inclusive fitness in biology, that you're not just trying to survive yourself or make copies of yourself, you're also trying to help those that are very similar to you do the same. 
almost certainly it's a huge aspect of how we perceive the world. Just anecdotally, from a number of trip reports, there's like this interesting thread of how some chemicals like MDMA and 2CB, for those who don't know, it's kind of these pathogenic psychedelic, that people get the strange sense that people they've never met before in their life are as close to them as a cousin or maybe a half-brother, half-sister. And it's a very comfortable and quite beautiful feeling. And you could imagine that nature was very selective on who do you give that feeling to in order to maximize inclusive fitness. All of these builds up to the overall prediction I would make that the sense of identity of ants and other extremely social insects might be very different. The reason being that they are genetically incentivized to basically treat each other as themselves. Most ants themselves don't produce any offspring. They are genetically sisters, and all of their genetic incentives are into basically helping the queen pass on the genes into other colonies. And in that sense, I would imagine an ant probably sees other ants of the same colony pretty much as themselves. Yes, there was an extraordinary finding a few years ago of members of one species of social ant actually passed the mirror test, which has traditionally been regarded as the gold standard of concept of a self. And it was shocking enough to many people when a small fish was shown to be capable of mirror self-recognition. If ants can pass the mirror test, it suggests some form of metacognition, self-recognition is extraordinarily ancient. So what is it that distinguishes humans from non-human animals? I suspect it's relating to something which is still physically unexplained. How is it that a massively parallel brain gives rise to serial logico-linguistic thought? Unexplained. But I would say that is what distinguishes us most of all, not our possession of a self-concept. So is there such a thing as a right answer to questions of identity? Or is it fundamentally just something that's functional? Or is it ultimately arbitrary? I think there is a right answer. From a functional perspective, there's just so many different ways of thinking about it. And I mean, as I I was describing, perhaps with ants and humans, their sense of identity is probably pretty different. But, you know, they both are useful for passing on the genes. So in that sense, they're all equally valid. Imagine in the future some kind of a swarm mind that also has its own distinct, functionally adaptive sense of identity. And I mean, in that sense, yeah, there's no ground truth to what it should be from the point of view of functionality. It really just depends on what is the replication unit. Ontologically, though, I think there is a a case to be made that either open or empty individualism are true. Maybe it would be good to define those terms first. Before we do that, your answer then is just that, yes, you you suspect that also ontologically in terms of fundamental physics, there are answers to questions of identity. Like identity itself isn't a confused category. Yeah, I I don't think it's uh, leaky reification, as they say. And then like from the phenomenological sense, is the self an illusion or not? Is the self a valid category? Is your view also on identity that there is a right answer there? From the phenomenological point of view, no, I, I would consider it a parameter. Mostly, just something you can vary and just trade-offs for different experiences of, of identity. Okay. How about you, David? 
I think ultimately, yes, there are right answers. But uh, in practice, uh, life would be unlivable if we didn't maintain these fictions. These fictions, in one sense, are deeply immoral. Just let's say one punishes someone for a deed that their namesake performed 10, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, America executed a murderer for a crime that was done 20 years ago. Now, quite aside from issues of freedom and responsibility and so on, this is just uh, uh, scapegoating. So, David, you feel that in the ontological sense, there are right or wrong answers to questions of identity and in the phenomenological sense and in the functional sense? Yes. Okay, so then I guess you disagree with Andres about the phenomenological sense. I'm not sure, Andres, and I agree about most things. <laughs> are we disagreeing, Andres? I'm not sure. I mean, what I said about the phenomenal aspect of identity was that I think of it as a parameter of our world simulation. And in that sense, there's kind of no true phenomenological sense of identity. They're all useful for different things. The reason I, I would say this too is that, okay, even if you assume that something like each snapshot of experience is its own separate identity, I'm not even sure you can accurately represent that <laughs> in, in a moment of experience itself. This is itself a huge can of worms. It opens up the problem of reference. <laughs> can we even actually refer to something from our own vintage point of view? My intuition here is that whatever sense of identity you have at a phenomenal level, I think of it as a parameter of the world simulation, and I don't think it can be an accurate representation of, of something true. It's just going to be a, a feeling, so to speak. I could endorse that. We fundamentally misperceive each other and the Hogan sisters, Craniopagus twins, know something that the rest of us don't, and that the Hogan sisters share a thalmic bridge, which enables them partially and to a limited extent to mind meld. The rest of us conceive each other as essentially, yes, people or objects that have feelings. And when one thinks of one's ignorance, on the whole, one might be lamenting one's failures as a, a mathematician or a physicist or, or anything else. But an absolutely fundamental form of ignorance that we take for granted is that other people, other non-human animals, essentially objects with feelings, whereas we individually have first-person experience. Whether it's going to be possible to overcome this in future, I think it's going to be immensely technically challenging building something like reversible thalamic bridges. A lot depends on one's theory of phenomenal binding. But let's pretend a future civilization in which partial mind melding is routine. I think it will lead to a revolution, not just in morality, but in decision theoretic rationality too. And that, yeah, one will taking account of, let's say, the desires, the interests, and the preferences of what will seem different aspects of oneself. So why does identity matter morally? I think you guys have made a good case about how it's important functionally, historically, in terms of biological evolution, and then in terms of like society and culture, identity is clearly extremely important for human social relations for navigating social hierarchies and understanding one's position of having a concept of self and identity over time. But why does it matter morally here? 
One interesting story where you can think of a lot of social movements and, in a sense, a lot of uh, ideologies that have existed in human history as attempts to hack people's sense of identities or make use of them for the purpose of the reproduction of the ideology or the social movement itself. To a large extent, a lot of the, the things that you see in uh, therapy have a lot to do with expanding your sense of identity to include your future self as well, which is something that a lot of people struggle with when it comes to impulsive decisions or irrationality. There's this interesting point of view of how a two-year-old or a three-year-old hasn't yet internalized the fact that they will wake up tomorrow and that the consequences of what they did today will linger on in the following days. It's kind of like a revelation when a kid finally internalizes the fact that, oh my gosh, like I will continue to exist for the rest of my life. There's going to be a point where I'm going to be 40 years old. And also there's going to be a time where I'm 80 years old. And like all of those are real and I should plan ahead for it. Ultimately, I do think that advocating for a very inclusive sense of identity where the locus of identity is consciousness itself. I do think that might be a, a tremendous moral and ethical implications. We want a sense of us that embraces all sentient beings, I think, which is extremely ambitious, but that, I think, should be the long-term goal. Right. So there's a spectrum here, and where you fall on the spectrum will lead to different functions and behaviors, solipsism or like extreme egoism on one end, pure selflessness or ego death or pure altruism on the other end. And perhaps there are other degrees and axes on which you can move. But the point is, it leads to radically different identifications and relations with other sentient beings and with other instantiations of consciousness. Would our conception of death be different if uh, it was convention to give someone a, a different name when they woke up each morning? I mean, because after all, it is akin to reincarnation. Why isn't it that when one is drifting asleep to, uh, each night, one uh, isn't afraid of death? It's because in some sense one believes one's going to be reincarnated in the morning. <laughs> I like that. Okay, so I want to return to this question after we hit on the different views of identity to really unpack the different ethical implications more, but I wanted to sneak that in here for a bit of context. So pivoting back to this sort of historical and contextual analysis of identity, we talked about biological evolution as like instantiating these things. How do you guys view religion as codifying an egoist view on identity? Religion codifies the idea of the eternal soul. And the soul kind of, I think, maps very strongly onto the phenomenological self. It makes that the thing that is immutable or undying or which transcends this realm. I'm talking obviously specifically here about Abrahamic religions, but then also in Buddhism, there is the self is an illusion or what David referred to as empty individualism, which we'll get into, where it says that that identification with the phenomenological self is fundamentally a misapprehension of reality and like a confusion and that that leads to attachment and suffering and fear of death. So do you guys have, have comments here about religion as codifying views on identity? I mean, I think it's definitely really interesting that there are different views of identity in religion. How um, I grew up, I always assumed religion was about souls and getting into heaven. But yeah, I mean, it turns out I, I just didn't know about Eastern religions and cults <laughs> that also happen to sometimes have like different views of personal identity. 
I mean, that was definitely a revelation to me. I would actually say that I started questioning the sense of a uh, common sense of personal identity before I learned about Eastern religions. And uh, I was really pretty surprised and very happy when I found out that, let's say, Hinduism actually has a kind of universal consciousness take on identity, a socially sanctioned way of looking at the world that has a very expansive sense of identity. Buddhism is also pretty interesting because, as far as I understand it, they consider actually pretty much any view of identity to be a cause for suffering, fundamentally. It has to do with a sense of craving either for existence or craving for non-existence, which they also consider a problem. A Buddhist would generally say that even something like universal consciousness, you know, believing that we're all fundamentally Krishna, incarnating in many different ways, itself will also be a, a source of suffering to some extent, because you may kind of crave further existence, which may not be very good from their point of view. It makes me optimistic that there's like other types of religions with other views of identity. Yes. I mean, one of my earliest memories, uh, my mother belonged to Order of the Cross who worshipped Father Mother, very obscure, small, vaguely Christian denomination, non-sexist. And I recall being told age five that I could be born again might be as a little boy, but it might be as a little girl because gender didn't matter. And I was absolutely appalled at this at the age of five or whatnot, uh, because, yeah, in some sense, girls were that I couldn't actually express this defective. And religious conceptions of identity vary immensely. I mean, one thinks of something like original sin in Christianity. So, yeah, I mean, I could make a lot of superficial comments about religion, but one would need to actually explore in detail the different religious traditions and their differing conceptions of identity. What are the different views on identity? If you can't say anything, why don't you hit on the ontological sense and the phenomenological sense? Or if we just want to stick to the phenomenological sense, then we can. I mean, are you talking about uh, open, empty, closed? Yeah, so that would be the phenomenological sense, yeah? No, actually, I would, I would claim those are attempts at getting at the ontological sense. Okay. If you do truly have a soul ontology, something that implicitly a very large percentage of the human population have, that would be, yeah, in this view called a closed individualist perspective. Common sense, you start existing when you're born, you stop existing when you die. You're just a, a stream of consciousness. Even perhaps more strongly, you're a soul that has experiences, but experiences maybe are not fundamental to what you are. Then there is the more Buddhist and definitely more generally scientifically minded view, which is empty individualism, which is that you only exist as a moment of experience. And from one moment to the next, you're a completely different entity. And then finally, there is open individualism, which is like Hinduism claiming that we are all one consciousness, fundamentally. There is an ontological way of thinking of these notions of identity. It's possible that a lot of people think of them just phenomenologically, or they may just think like there's no further fact beyond the phenomenal, in which case something like closed individualism for most people most of the time is self-evidently true because you are kind of moving in time and you can notice that you continue to be yourself from one moment to the next, then, of course, what would it feel like if you weren't the same person from one moment to the next? Well, <laughs> each of those moments might completely be under the illusion that it is a continuous self. 
for most things in, in philosophy and science, if you want to use something as evidence, it has to agree with one theory and, and disagree with another one. And the sense of continuity from one second to the next seems to be compatible with all three views. So it's, it's not itself uh, much, much evidence either way. States of depersonalization are probably much more akin to empty individualism from a phenomenological point of view. And then you have ego death and definitely some experiences of the psychedelic variety, especially high doses psychedelics, tend to produce very strong feelings of open individualism that often comes in the form of noticing that your conventional sense of self is very buggy and doesn't seem to track anything real, but then realizing that you can identify with awareness itself. And if you do that, then in some sense, automatically, you realize that you are every other experience out there since the fundamental ingredient of a witness or awareness is shared with every conscious experience. These views on identity are confusing to me because agents haven't existed for most of the universe. And I don't know why we need to privilege agents in our ideas of identity. They seem to me just emergent patterns of a big ancient old physical universe process that's unfolding. It's confusing to me that just because there are complex self and world modeling patterns in the world that we need to privilege them with some kind of shared identity across themselves or across the world. Do you see what I mean here? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm not a agent centric. <laughs> and I mean, in, in a sense, like also like all of these other exotic feelings of identity often also come with states of low agency. You actually don't feel that you have much of a choice in what you could do. I mean, definitely depersonalization, for example, often comes with a sense of inability to make choices that actually you, it's not you who's making the choice. They're just unfolding and happening. Of course, in some meditative traditions, that's considered a path to awakening. But in practice, for a lot of people, that's a very unpleasant type of experience. It sounds like I might be privileging agents. I would say that's not the case. If you kind of zoom out and you see the bigger worldview, it includes basically this concept, David calls it non-materialist, physicalist idealism, where the laws of physics describe the behavior of the universe, but that which is behaving according to the laws of physics is qualia, is consciousness itself. I take very seriously the idea that a given molecule or a particular atom contains moments of experience. It's just perhaps very fleeting and very dim or, or just not very relevant in many ways, but I, I do think it's there. and sense of identity, maybe not in a phenomenal sense. I don't think an atom actually feels like an agent over time, but continuity of its experience and the boundaries of its experience would have strong bearings on ontological sense of identity. There's a huge, obviously a huge jump between talking about the identity of atoms and then talking about the identity of a moment of experience, which presumably is an emergent effect of a hundred billion neurons themselves made of just so many different atoms. Crazy as it may be, it is both David Pierce's view and my view that actually each moment of experience does stand as an ontological unit. It's just an ontological unit of a certain kind that usually we don't see in physics, but it is both physical and ontologically closed. Maybe you could unpack this. You know muriological nihilism. Maybe I privilege this view where I just am trying to be as simple as possible and not build up too many concepts on top of each other. Mirrorological nihilism basically says that there are no entities that have parts. Everything is partless. 
all that exists in reality is individual monads, so to speak, things that are like fundamentally self-existing, but that if you have, let's say, monad A and monad B, just put together side by side, that doesn't entail that now there is a monad AB that kind of mixes the two. Or if you put a bunch of fundamental quarks together that it makes something called an atom. You would just say that it's quarks arranged atom-wise. There's the structure and the information there, but it's just made of the monads. Right. And the atom is a wonderful case, basically the same as a molecule, where I would say mirrorological nihilism with fundamental particles as just the only truly existing beings does seem to be false when you look at how, for example, molecules behave. The building block account of how chemical bonds happen, which is kind of with these Lewis diagrams of how you can have a single bond or double bond, and you have the octet rule, and you're trying to build these chains of atoms strung together. And all that matters for those diagrams is what each atom is locally connected to. However, if you just use these in order to predict what molecules are possible and how they behave and their properties, you will see that there's a lot of artifacts that are empirically disproven. And over the years, chemistry has become more and more sophisticated, where eventually it's come to the realization that you need to take into account the entire molecule at once in order to understand what it's quote-unquote dynamically stable configuration, which involves all of the electrons and all of the nuclei simultaneously interlocking into a particular pattern that self-replicates. And it has new properties over and above the parts. Exactly. That doesn't make any sense to me or my intuition. So maybe my intuitions are just really wrong. (laughs) Where does the new property or causality come from? Because it essentially has causal efficacy over and above the parts. Yeah, it's it's tremendously confusing. I mean, I'm, I'm currently writing an article about basically how this sense of topological segmentation can, in a sense, account both for this effect of what we might call weak downward causation, which is like you get a molecule. And now the molecule will have effects in the world that you need to take into account all of the electrons and all of the nuclei simultaneously as a unit in order to actually know what the effect is going to be in the world. You cannot just take each of the components uh, separately. That's something that we could call as weak downward causation. It's not that fundamentally you're introducing a, a new law of physics. Everything is still predicted by the Schrodinger equation. It's still governing the behavior of the entire molecule. It's just that the appropriate unit of analysis is not the electron, but it would be the entire molecule. Now, if you pair this together with a sense of identity that comes from topology, then I think there might be a good case for why moments of experience are discrete entities. The analogy here with topological segmentation, hopefully I'm not going to lose too many listeners here, but we can make an analogy with, for example, a balloon that if you start out imagining that you are the surface of the balloon, and then you take the balloon by two ends and you twist them in opposite directions, eventually at the middle point, you get what's called a pinch point. Basically, the balloon kind of collapses in the center and you end up having these two smooth surfaces connected by a pinch point. Each of those twists creates a new topological segment, or in a sense is like segmenting out the balloon you could basically interpret things such as molecules as new topological segmentations of what's fundamentally the quantum fields that is implementing them. 
Usually, the segmentations may look like a, an electron or a proton, but if you assemble them together just right, you can get them to essentially melt with each other and become one topologically continuous unit. The nice thing about this account is that you get everything that you want. You explain on the one hand, why identity would actually have causal implications, and it's this weak downward causation effect. At the same time as like being able to explain how is it possible that the universe can break down into many different entities, well, the answer is the way in which it's breaking down is through topological segmentations. You end up having these kind of self-contained regions of the wave function that are discommunicated from the rest of it. And each of those might be a different subject of experience. It's very much an open question, the intrinsic nature of the physical. Commonly, materialism and physicalism are equated. But the point of view that uh, Andreas and I take seriously, non-materialist physicalism is actually a form of idealism. Recently, philosopher Phil Goff, Galileo's era, used to be a skeptic, critic of non-materialist physicalism because of the binding problem. He's recently published a book defending it. Very much uh, an open question. I mean, we're we're making some background assumptions here. Uh, Critical background assumption is physicalism, that quantum mechanics is complete. There is no element of reality that is missing from the equations or possibly the uh, fundamental equation of physics. But physics itself seems to be silent on the intrinsic nature of the physical. I mean, intuitively, what is the nature of a, a quantum field? Intuitively, it's a field of insentience. But this isn't a scientific discovery. It's a very strong philosophical intuition. And if you couple this with the fact that the only part of the world with which one has direct access, i.e. one's own conscious mind, though this is controversial, is consciousness sentience. The non-materialist physicalist will conjecture that we are typical in one sense that the fields of your central nervous system aren't ontologically different from the rest of the world. And what makes sentient beings special is the way that fields are organized into subjects of experience, egocentric world simulations. Now, I'm personally fairly confident that each of us individually is running a mind's egocentric world simulation, that direct realism is false. I'm not at all confident, though I certainly explore it, that experience is the intrinsic nature of the physical, the stuff of the world. But this is a tradition that goes back via Russell ultimately to Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer essentially turning Kant on his head. Kant famously said that all we will ever know is phenomenology, appearances. We will never, never know the intrinsic noumenal nature of the world. But Schopenhauer argues that essentially we do actually know one tiny piece of the noumenal essence of the world, the essence of the physical, and it's experiential. So yes, tentatively at any rate, Andres and I would uh, defend non-materialist or idealistic physicalism. The actual term non-materialist physicalism is due to the late Grover Maxwell. Sorry, could you just define that real quick? I think we haven't. Physicalism is the idea that no element of reality is missing from the equations of physics, presumably some relativistic generalization of the Schrodinger equation. It's a kind of naturalism, too. 
Oh, yes, it is naturalism. There are some forms of idealism and panpsychism that are non-naturalistic, but this is uncompromisingly monist. Non-materialist physicalism isn't claiming that uh, primitive experience is, is attached in some way to fundamental physical properties. The idea is that the actual intrinsic nature, the essence of the physical, is experiential. Stephen Hawking, for instance, was a wave function monist, a doctrinaire materialist, but he famously said that we have no idea what breathes far into the equations and makes there a universe for us to describe. Now, intuitively, of course, one assumes that the fire in the equations, Kant's numinal essence of the world, is non-experiential. But if so, we have the hard problem, we have the binding problem, we have the problem of causal efficacy, a great mess of problems. But if, and it's obviously a huge if, the actual intrinsic nature of the physical is experiential, then we have a theory of reality that is empirically adequate, that has tremendous explanatory predictive power. Mind-bogglingly implausible, at least to those of us steeped in the conceptual framework of materialism. But yes, by transposing the entire mathematical apparatus of modern physics, quantum field theory, or its generalization onto an idealist ontology, one actually has a complete account of reality that explains the kind of the technological successes of science, its predictive power, and doesn't give rise to such insoluble mysteries as the hard problem. I, I think all this is like very clarifying that there are also background metaphysical views, which people may or may not disagree upon, which are also important for identity. I also want to be careful to define some terms in case some listeners don't know what they mean. I think you hit on like four different things, which all had to do with consciousness. The hard problem is why different kinds of computation actually, why it's something to be that computation or like why there is consciousness correlated or associated with that experience. Then you also said the binding problem. Is it the binding problem why there is a unitary experience that you said modally connected earlier? Yes. I mean, if one takes the standard view from neuroscience that your brain consists of 86 billion-odd discrete decohered membrane-bound cells, then phenomenal binding, either local or global, ought to be impossible. So, yeah, this is the binding problem, this partial structural mismatch that neuroscience can apparently, if it scans your brain when you're seeing a particular perceptual object, can pick out distributed feature processors, edge detectors, motion detectors, color-mediating neurons, and yet there isn't the perfect structural match that must exist if physicalism is true. And David Chalmers, from this partial structural mismatch, goes on to argue that uh, dualism must be true. Though I agree with David Chalmers that, yes, phenomenal binding is classically impossible. If one takes the intrinsic nature argument seriously, then phenomenal unity is, is minted in. The intrinsic nature argument, recall, is that experience or consciousness discloses the intrinsic nature of the physical. Now, one of the reasons why this is so desperately implausible is it makes the fundamental psychon of consciousness ludicrously small. But there's a neglected corollary of non-materialist physicalism in that if experience discloses the intrinsic nature of the physical, essentially experience must be temporally incredibly fine-grained. And if you probe your nervous system at a temporal resolution of femtoseconds or even attoseconds, what would one find? 
and it's my guess that it'd be possible to recover a perfect structural match between what you are experiencing now in your phenomenal world simulation and the underlying physics that superpositions or cat states are individual entities. Now, if the effective lifetime of neuronal superpositions in the CNS were milliseconds, they would be the obvious candidate for a perfect structural match and to explain the phenomenal unity of consciousness. But physicists, not least uh, Max Tegmark, have done the maths. The effective lifetime of neuronal superpositions in the CNS, assuming the unitary only dynamics, is femtoseconds or less, which is intuitively the reductio ad absurdum of any kind of quantum mind. But one person's reductio ad absurdum is another person's falsifiable prediction. And I'm guessing, I'm sounding like a believer, I'm not, but I am guessing that when there is sufficiently sensitive molecular matter wave interferometry, perhaps using trained up mini brains, that the non-classical interference signature will disclose a perfect structural match between what you're experiencing right now, you're in your unified world simulation and the underlying physics. So we hit on the hard problem and also the binding problem. Uh, there was like two other ones that you threw out there earlier that I forget what they were. Yeah, the problem of causal efficacy how is it that you and I can discuss consciousness? How is it that the raw fields of consciousness have not merely the causal, but also the functional efficacy to inspire discussions of their existence? And then what was the last one? What's been called the Palette problem, P-A-L-E-T-T-E. As in the fact that there is tremendous diversity of different kinds of experience and yet the fundamental entities recognized by physics, at least on the normal tale, are extremely simple and homogeneous. What explains this extraordinarily rich palette of conscious experience? Physics exhaustively describes the structural relational properties of the world. What physics doesn't do is deal in essences, intrinsic nature. Now, it's an extremely plausible assumption that the world's fundamental fields are non-experiential, devoid of any subjective properties, and this may well be the case. But if so, we have the hard problem, the problem of causal efficacy, binding problem, the whole raft of problems. Okay, so this all serves the purpose of codifying that there's these questions up in the air about these metaphysical views which inform identity we got here because we were talking about mirrorological nihilism. And Andres said that one view that you guys have is that you can divide or cut up or partition consciousness into individual, momentary, unitary moments of experience that you claim are ontologically simple. What is your credence on this view? Phenomenological evidence. When you experience your visual field, you don't only experience one point at a time. The contents of your experience are not ones and zeros. It isn't the case that you experience one and then zero and then one again. Rather, you experience many different types of qualia varieties simultaneously. Visuals uh, experience and auditory experience and, and so on. All of that gets presented to you. I take that very seriously. I mean, some other researchers may fundamentally say that that's an illusion, that there's actually never a unified experience. But I you know, like that has way many more problems than actually taking seriously the unity of consciousness. A number of distinct questions here. 
are each of us egocentric, phenomenal world simulations. And a lot of people are implicitly perceptual direct realists, even though they might disavow the label, but implicitly they assume that they have some kind of direct access to physical properties and they will associate experience with some kind of stream of thoughts and feelings behind their forehead. But then there is the question, what is the actual fundamental nature of the world beyond your phenomenal world simulation? Is it experiential or non-experiential? I'm agnostic about that, even though I argue for non-materialist physicalism. So I guess I'm just trying to get a better answer here on how is it that we navigate these views of identity towards truth? An example I thought of a very big contrast between what you may intuitively imagine is going on versus what's actually happening is if you're very afraid of snakes, for example, and you you look at a snake, you feel, oh my gosh, it's intruding into my world and uh, I should get away from it. And you have kind of this representation of it as a very big other, you know, anything that is very threatening, oftentimes you represent it as an other. But crazily, that's actually just yourself to a large extent, because it's still part of your experience. You know, within your moment of experience, the whole phenomenal quality of looking at a snake and thinking that's an other is entirely contained within you. In that sense, these ways of ascribing identity and continuity to the things around us, or like a self-other division, are almost kind of psychotic. They kind of start out by assuming that you can segment out a piece of your experience and call it something that belongs to somebody else, even though clearly it's still just part of your own experience. It's you. But the background here is also that you're calling your experience your own experience, which is maybe also a kind of psychopathy. Is that the word you use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> maybe the scientific thing is like there's just snake experience, and it's neither yours nor not yours, and there's what we conventionally call a snake. That said, there are ways in which I think you can use experience to gain insight about other experiences. If you're looking at a picture that has two blue dots, I think you can accurately say by paying attention to one of those blue dots, the phenomenal property of my sensation of blue is also in that other part of my visual field. And this is a case where, in a sense, you can, I think, meaningfully refer to some aspect of your experience by pointing at another aspect of your experience. It's still maybe in some sense kind of crazy, but it's still closer to truth than many other things that we think of or imagine. Honest and true statements about the nature of other people's experiences, I think, are very much achievable. Bridging the reference gap, I think, might be possible to overcome. And you can probably aim for like a true sense of identity, harmonizing the phenomenal and the ontological sense of identity. I mean, I think that part of the motivation, for example, in Buddhism is that you need to always be understanding yourself and reality as it is or else you will suffer and that it is through understanding how things are that you'll stop suffering. I like this point that you said about unifying the phenomenal identity and phenomenal self with what is ontologically true. But that also seems not intrinsically necessary because there's also this other point here where you can like maybe function or have the epistemology of any arbitrary identity view, but not identify with it. You don't take it as your ultimate understanding of the nature of the world or like what it means to be this limited pattern and a giant system. I mean, generally speaking, that's obviously a pretty good advice. It does seem to be something that's kind of constrained to the workings of the human mind as it is currently implemented. 
you know, I mean, definitely all, all these Buddhist advices of don't identify with it or don't get attached to it. Ultimately, it cashes out in experiencing less of a craving, for example, or feeling less despair in some cases. Useful advice, not universally applicable. For many people, their problem might be something like, sure, like desire, craving, attachment, in which case, you know, these Buddhist practices will actually be very helpful. But if your problem is something like uh, melancholic depression, then lack of desire <laughs> doesn't actually seem very appealing. That is the default state, and it's not a good one. I'd be mindful of universalizing this advice. Yes, other things being equal, the happiest people tend to have the most desires. Of course, uh, tremendous desire can also bring tremendous suffering, but there are a very large number of people in the world who are essentially unmotivated, Nothing really excites them. In some cases, they're just waiting to die, melancholic, depression. Desire can be harnessed. Big problem, of course, is that in a Darwinian world, many of our desires are mutually inconsistent. And to use what, to me at least, would be a trivial example, not to everyone, uh, if you have 50 different football teams with all their supporters, there is simply logically no way that the preferences of these fanatical football supporters can be reconciled. But nonetheless, by raising hedonic set points, one can allow all football supporters to enjoy gradients of information-sensitive bliss, but there is yeah, simply no way to reconcile their preferences. There's part of me that does want to do some universalization here, and like maybe that is wrong or unskillful to do. But I seem to be able to imagine a future where, say, we get aligned superintelligence and there's some kind of rapid expansion, some kind of optimization bubble of some kind. And maybe there are like the worker AIs and then there are like the exploiter AIs and the exploiter AIs just get blissed out. And imagine if some of the exploiter AIs are egomaniacs in their hedonistic simulations and some of them are hive minds and they all have different views on open individualism or closed individualism. Some of the views on identity just seem more diluted to me than others. I seem to have a problem with a self-identification and reification of self as something. It seems to me to take something that is conventional and make it an ultimate truth, which is confusing to the agent. And that to me seems bad or wrong, like your world model is wrong. Part of me wants to say it is always better to know the truth, but I also feel like I'm having a hard time being able to say how to navigate views of identity in a true way. And then another part of me feels like, actually, it doesn't really matter, only insofar as it affects the flavor of that consciousness. If we find like the chemical or genetic levers for different notions of identity, we could presumably imagine a lot of different ecosystems of approaches to identity in the future, some of them perhaps being much more adaptive than others. I do think I grasp a little bit like maybe the intuition pump, and I think that's actually something that resonates quite a bit with us, which is that it is an instrumental value for sure to always be truth-seeking, especially when you're talking about like general intelligence. It's very weird and it sounds like it's going to fail if you say, hey, I'm going to be truth-seeking in every domain except on here. And these might be identity or value function or your model of physics or something like that. But perhaps actual superintelligence, in some sense, it really entails having an open-ended model for everything, including, ultimately, who you are. 
if you're not having those open-ended models that can be revised with further evidence and reasoning, you are not a super intelligence. That intuition pump may suggest that if intelligence turns out to be extremely adaptive and, and powerful, then presumably, you know, the super intelligences of the future will have like true models of what's actually going on in the world, not just convenient fictions. Yes. In some sense, I think uh, I would hope our long-term goal is ignorance of the entire Darwinian era and its horrors, but it would be extremely dangerous if we were to give up prematurely. We need to understand reality and the theoretical upper bounds of rational moral agency in the cosmos. And ultimately, when we have done literally everything that it is possible to do to minimize and prevent suffering, I think in some sense uh, we want to forget about it altogether. But I would stress the risks of premature defeatism. Of course, we're always going to need a self-model a model of the cognitive architecture in which the self-model is embedded. It needs to understand the directly adjacent computations which are integrated into it. But it seems like the views of identity go beyond just this self-model. Is that the solution to identity? What does open, closed, or empty individualism have to say about something like that? Open, empty, and closed as ontological claims yeah, I mean, they, they are separable from the functional uses of, of a self-model. It does, however, have like bearings on basically the decision-theoretic rationality of an intelligence. Because when it comes to planning ahead, if you have the intense, let's say, objective of being as happy as you can, and somebody offers you a cloning machine, and they say like, hey, you can trade one year of your life for just a completely new copy of yourself, do you press the button to make that happen? For making that decision, you actually do require a model of ontological notion of identity, unless you just care about replication. So I think that the problem there is that identity, at least in us apes, is caught up in ethics. If you could have an agent like that where identity was not factored into ethics, then I think that it would make a better decision. It's definitely a question, too, of like whether you can bootstrap an impartial God's eye view on the well-being of all sentient beings without first having developed a sense of own identity and then wanting to preserve it. And finally, kind of updating it with more information, you know, philosophy, reasoning, physics. I do wonder if you can start out without caring about identity and finally concluding with kind of an impartial God's eye view. I think probably in practice, a lot of those transitions do happen because a person is first concerned with themselves, and then they update the model of who they are based on more evidence. You know, I, I could be wrong. It might be possible to completely sidestep kind of Darwinian identities and just jump straight up into impartial care for all sentient beings. I don't know. So we're getting into the ethics of identity here and like wh wh why it matters. The question for this portion of the discussion is, what are the ethical implications of different views on identity? So, Andres, I think you can sort of kick this conversation off by talking a little bit about the game theory. Right. Well, yeah, the game theory is surprisingly complicated. Just consider within a given person, in fact, the different quote-unquote sub-agents of an individual. Let's say you're drinking with your friends on a Friday evening, but you know you have to wake up early at 8 a.m. for whatever reason, and you're deciding whether to have another drink or not. Your intoxicated self says, yes, of course, 
tonight is all that matters, you know, whereas your cautious self might try to uh, persuade you that no, you will also exist tomorrow in the morning. Within a given person, there's all kinds of complex game theory that happens between alternative views of identity, even implicitly. It becomes obviously much more tricky when you expand it uh, outwards, how like some social movements, in a sense, are trying to hack people's view of identity, whether the unit is your political party or the country or the whole ecosystem or whatever it may be. A key thing to consider here is the existence of legible selling points also called focal points, which is in the absence of communication between entities, what are some kind of guiding principles that they can use in order to effectively coordinate and uh, move towards a certain goal? I would say that having something like open individualism itself can be a powerful shelling point for coordination, especially because if you can be convinced that somebody is an open individualist, you have reasons to trust them. There's all of this research on how high trust social environments are so much more conducive to productivity and long-term sustainability than low trust environments. And expansive notions of identity are very trust building. On the other hand, from a game theoretical point of view, you also have the problem of defection. Within an open individualist society, you have a small group of people who can fake the test of open individualism. They can take over from within and instantiate some kind of a dictatorship or (laughs) some type of a closed individualist takeover of what was a a really good society, good for everybody. This is a, a serious problem, even when it comes to, for example, forming groups of people with all of them share a certain experience, for example, MDMA or 5-MeO DMT or let's say deep stages of meditation. Even then, you've got to be careful because people who are resistant to those states may pretend that they have an expanded notion of identity, but actually covertly work towards a much more reduced sense of identity. I've yet to see a credible, game-theoretically aware solution to how to make this work. If you could clarify the knobs in a person whether it be altruism or selfishness or other things that the different views on identity turn. And if you could clarify how that affects the game theory, then I think that that would be helpful. I mean, I think like the biggest knob is fundamentally what experiences count from the point of view of the fact that you, you expect to, in a sense, be there or expect them to be real in as real of a way as your current experience is. It's also contingent on theories of consciousness, because you could be an open individualist and still believe that higher order cognition is necessary for consciousness and that non-human animals are not conscious. That gives rise to all sorts of other problems. The person presumably is altruistic and cares about others, but they just still don't include non-human animals for a completely different reason in that case. Definitely another knob is how you consider what you will be in the future whether you consider that to be part of the universe or the entirety (laughs) of the universe. I guess I used to think that personal identity was very tied to a hedonic tone. I think of them as like much more dissociated now. There is the general pattern. People who are very low mood may have kind of a bias towards empty individualism. People who become open individualists 
often experience a huge surge in positive feelings for a while because they feel that they're never going to die, like the fear of death greatly diminishes. But I don't actually think it's a surefire or a foolproof way of increasing well-being because if you take seriously open individualism, it also comes with terrible implications like that, hey, we are also the pigs in factory farms. It's not a very pleasant view. Yeah, I take that seriously. I used to believe for a while the best thing we could possibly do in the world was to just write a lot of essays and books about why open individualism is true. Now I think it's important to combine it with consciousness technologies so that, hey, once we do want to upgrade our sense of identity to a greater circle of compassion, that we also have the enhanced happiness and mental stability to be able to actually engage with that without going crazy. And this has me thinking about one point that I think is very motivating for me for the ethical case of veganism. Take the common sense, normal consciousness like most people have and that I have. You just feel like a self that's having an experience. You just feel like you are fortunate enough to be born as you and to be having the Andres experience or the Lucas experience and that your life is from birth to death or whatever. And like when you die, you will be annihilated. You will no longer have experience then who is it that is experiencing the cow consciousness? Or like, who is it that is experiencing the chicken and the pig consciousness? There's so many instantiations of that, like billions. Even if this is based off of irrationality, it still feels motivating to me. Yeah, I could just die and wake up as a cow 10 billion times. That's kind of the experience that is going on right now. Sudden confused awakening into cow consciousness plus factory farming conditions. I'm not sure if you find that completely irrational or motivating or what. No, I mean, I think it makes sense. We have a common friend as well, Magnus Winding. He wrote a pro-veganism book, actually, kind of with this line of reasoning. It's called You Are Them, about, yeah, how a post-theoretical science of consciousness and, and identity itself is a strong case for an ethical lifestyle. So just touching here on the ethical implications, like some other points that I just want to add here are that when one is identified with one's phenomenal identity, in particular, I want to talk about the experience of self, where you feel like you're a closed individualist, which your life is like when you were born and then up until when you die, that's you. I think that that breeds a very strong duality in terms of your relationship, your own personal phenomenal consciousness. The suffering and joy which you have direct access to are categorized as mine or not mine. Those which are mine take high moral and ethical priority over the suffering of others. You're not mind-melded with all of the other brains, right? So there's an epistemological limitation there where you're not directly experiencing the suffering of other people, but the closed individualist view goes a step further and isn't just saying that there's an epistemological limitation, but it's also saying that this consciousness is mine and that consciousness is yours, and this is the distinction between self and other, and given selfishness, that self-consciousness will take moral priority over other consciousness. That, I think, just obviously has massive ethical implications with regards to the greed of people. I view here the ethical implications as being important because, at least in the way that human beings function, if one is able to fully rid themselves of the ultimate identification with your personal consciousness as being the content of self, then I can move beyond the duality of consciousness as self and other and care about all instances of well-being and suffering much more equally than I currently do. That, to me, seems harder to do, at least with human brains. If we have a strong reification and identification with your instances of suffering or well-being as your own. 
part of the problem is that the existence of other subjects of experience is metaphysical speculation. It's metaphysical speculation that one should take extremely seriously. I'm not a, a solipsist. I believe that other subjects of experience, human and non-human, are as real as mine. But nonetheless, it is still speculative and theoretical. One cannot feel their experiences. There is simply no way, given the way that we are constituted, the way we are, that one can behave in an impartial, sort of godlike, with impartial godlike benevolence. I guess I would question perhaps a little bit that we only care about our future suffering within our own experience because this is me, this is mine, self and other. In a sense, I think we care about those more, largely because they're more intense. You do see examples of, for example, mirror touch synesthesia of people who, if they see somebody else get hurt, they also experience pain. And I don't mean a fleeting sense of discomfort, but like perhaps even actual, you know, strong pain because they're able to kind of reflect that for whatever reason. People like that are generally very motivated to help others as well. And in a sense, their implicit self-model includes others, or at least weights others more than most people do. I mean, in some sense, you can perhaps make sense of selfishness in this context as the coincidence that what is within our self-model is experienced as more intense. But there's plenty of counterexamples to that, including sense of depersonalization or ego death, where you could experience the feeling of God, for example, as being this eternal and impersonal force that is infinitely more intense than you, and therefore it matters more, even though you don't experience it as you. Perhaps the core issue is what gets the, the highest amount of intensity within your world simulation. Okay, so I also just want to touch on a little bit about preferences here before we move on to how this is relevant to AI alignment and the creation of beneficial AI. From the moral realist perspective, if you take the metaphysical existence of consciousness very substantially and you view it as the ground of morality, then different views on identity will shift how you weight the preferences of other creatures. And so from a moral perspective, whatever kinds of views of identity end up broadening your moral circle of compassion closer and closer to the end goal of impartial benevolence for all sentient beings, according to their degree and kinds of worth, I would view as a good thing. But now there's this other way to think about identity, because if you're listening to this and you're a moral anti-realist, there is just the arbitrary, evolutionary, and historical set of preferences that exist across all creatures on the planet, then the views on identity, I think, are also obviously, again, going to weigh into your moral considerations about how much to just respect different preferences, right? One might want to go beyond hedonic consequentialism here and could just be a preference consequentialist. You could be a deontological ethicist or a virtue ethicist, too. We could also consider about how different views on identity as lived experiences would affect what it means to become virtuous, if being virtuous means moving beyond the self, actually. I think I understand what you're getting at. I mean, really, there's kind of two components to ontology. One is what exists, and then the other one is what is valuable. You can arrive at something like open individualism just from the point of view of what exists, but still have disagreements with other open individualists about what is valuable. Alternatively, you could agree on what is valuable with somebody, but completely disagree on, on what exists. To get the power 
of cooperation, of open individualism as a shelling point, there also needs to be some level of agreement on what is valuable, not just what exists. It definitely sounds arrogant, but <laughs> I do think that by the same principle by which you arrive at open individualism or empty individualism, basically non-standard views of identities, you can also arrive at hedonistic utilitarianism. And that is, again, like the principle of really caring about knowing who or what you are fundamentally. To know yourself more deeply also entails understanding from second to second how your preferences impact your state of consciousness. It is my view that just as open individualism, you can think of it as the implication of taking a very systematic approach to make sense of identity. Likewise, philosophical hedonism is also a, a, an implication of taking a very systematic approach at trying to figure out what is valuable. How do we know that pleasure is good? <laughs> yeah, I mean, does the pleasure-pain axis disclose the world's intrinsic metric of disvalue? There is something completely coercive about pleasure and pain, and one can't transcend the pleasure-pain axis. Taking heroin or enhanced interrogation, there is no one with an inverted pleasure-pain axis. Supposed counterexamples like sadomasochists, in fact, just validate the primacy of the pleasure-pain axis. What follows from the primacy of the pleasure-pain axis? Should we be aiming, as classical utilitarians urge, to maximize the positive abundance of subjective value in the universe, or at least our forward light cone? But uh, if we are classical utilitarians, there is this latently apocalyptic implication of classical utilitarianism that we ought to be aiming to launch something like a utilitronium or hedonium shockwave, where utilitronium or hedonium is uh, matter and energy optimized for pure bliss. And so rather than any kind of notion of personal identity as we currently understand it, if one is a classical utilitarian, or if one is programming a computer or a robot for the utility function of classical utilitarianism, should essentially one be uh, aiming, therefore, to launch an apocalyptic utilitronium shockwave? Or alternatively, should one be trying to ensure that the abundance of positive value within our cosmological horizon is suboptimal by utilitarian criteria? I don't actually personally advocate uh, a utilitronium shockwave. I don't think it's sociologically realistic. I think much more sociologically realistic is to aim for a world based on radiance of intelligent bliss, because that way people's existing values and preferences, for the most part, can be conserved. But nonetheless, if one is a classical utilitarian, it's not clear one is allowed this kind of messy compromise. All right. So now that we're getting into the juicy hedonistic imperative type stuff, let's talk about here about how this is relevant to AI alignment and the creation of beneficial AI. I think that this is clear based off of the conversations we've had already about the ethical implications and just how prevalent identity is in our world for the functioning of society and sociology, just civilization in general. So let's limit the conversation for the moment just to AI alignment. And for this initial discussion of AI alignment, 
I just want to limit it to the definition of AI alignment as developing the technical process by which AIs can learn human preferences and help further express and idealize humanity. So exploring how identity is important and meaningful for that process, two points I think that it's relevant for. Who are we making the AI for? Different views on identity I think would matter. Because if we assume that sufficiently powerful and integrated AI systems are likely to have consciousness or to have qualia, they're moral agents in themselves. So who are we making the AI for? We're making new patients or subjects of morality if we ground morality on consciousness. So from a purely egoistic point of view, the AI alignment process is just for humans. It's just to get the AI to serve us. But if we care about all sentient beings impartially and we just want to maximize conscious bliss in the world and we don't have these dualistic distinction of consciousness being self or other, we could make the AI alignment process something that is more purely altruistic, that we recognize that we're creating something that is fundamentally more morally relevant than we are, given that it may have more profound capacities for experience or not. And David, I'm also holding in my hand, I know that you're skeptical of the ability of AGI or superintelligence to be conscious. I agree that that's not solved yet, but I'm just working here with the idea, okay, maybe if they are. So I think it can change the altruism versus selfishness motivations around who we're training the AIs for. And then the second part is, why are we making the AI? Are we making it for ourselves or are we making it for the world? If we take a view from nowhere, what Andres called a God's eye view, is this ultimately something that is for humanity or is it something ultimately for just making a better world? Personally, I feel that if the end goal is ultimate loving kindness and impartial ethical commitment to the well-being of all sentient creatures in all directions, then ideally the process is something that we're doing like for the world and that we recognize the intrinsic moral worth of the AGI and superintelligence as ultimately more morally relevant descendants of ours. So I wonder if you guys have any reactions to this. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. So many. Tongue in cheek, but uh, you just made me chuckle when you said, why are we making the AI to begin with? I think there's a case to be made that the actual reason why we're making AI is as a kind of a impressive display of fitness in order to signal our intellectual fortitude and superiority. <laughs> I mean, sociologically speaking, you know, like actually, you know, getting a, an AI to do something really well, it's a way in which you can yourself signal your own intelligence. And I guess I, I worry to some extent that this is a bit of a tragedy of the commons, as it is the case with a weapon development. You're so concerned with whether you can, and especially because the social incentives that you're going to gain status and, and be looked at as somebody who's really competent and smart, that you don't really stop and wonder whether you should be building this in the first place. Leaving that aside, just from a purely ethically motivated point of view, I do remember thinking and having a lot of discussions many years ago about if we can make a supercomputer experience what it's like for a human to be on MDMA, then all of a sudden that supercomputer becomes a, a moral patient. It actually matters. You probably shouldn't turn it off. Maybe, in fact, you should make more of them. A very important thing I'd like to say here is I think it's really important to distinguish the notion of intelligence on the one hand as causal power over your environment and on the other hand as the capacity for self-insight and introspection and understanding reality. And I would say that we tend to confuse these quite a bit. I mean, especially in circles that don't take consciousness very seriously, 
it's usually implicitly assumed that having a superhuman ability to control your environment entails that you also have, in a sense, kind of a superhuman sense of self or a superhuman broad sense of intelligence. Whereas even if you are a functionalist, I mean, even if you believe that a digital computer can be conscious, you can make a pretty strong case that even then, it is not something automatic. It's not just that if you program the appropriate behavior, it will automatically also be conscious. A super straightforward example here is that if you have the Chinese room, if it's just a giant lookup table, clearly is not a subject of experience, even though the input-output mapping might be very persuasive. There's definitely still problems there. And I think like if we aim instead towards maximizing intelligence in the broad sense, that does entail also the ability to actually understand the nature and scope of other states of consciousness. And in that sense, I think a superintelligence of that sort would be intrinsically aligned with the intrinsic values of consciousness. But there's just so many ways of making partial superintelligences that maybe are superintelligent in many ways, but not in that one in particular. And I worry about that. I sometimes give this kind of simplistic uh, trichotomy, three conceptions of superintelligence. One, there's the kind of intelligence explosion recursively self-improving software-based AI. Then there is the Kurtzweilian scenario, complete fusion of humans and our machines. And then there is what very crudely one can call biological superintelligence, but not just rewriting our genetic source code, but also the neural link here is uh, prefiguring it. Essentially, narrow superintelligence on a chip so that anything that a digital computer can do that a human or a transhuman can do. And so, yes, I see a full spectrum superintelligence as a biological descendants super sentient, able to navigate radically alien states of consciousness. And so I think, is it the question that you're asking, why are we developing narrow AI, possibly narrow AGI? Is that question the purely non-biological machine attempt at superintelligence? I'm speaking specifically from the AI alignment perspective, how you align current day systems and future systems to superintelligence and beyond with human values and preferences. And so the, the question born of that in the context of the, these questions of identity is who are we making that AI for and like why are we making the AI? If you've got Buddha, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Buddha would press the off button. I would press the off button. What's the off button? Sorry, the notional, you know, initiate a, a vacuum phase transition or something and uh, obliterate Darwinian life. But when people talk about AI alignment, or most people working in the field, they are not talking about uh, a Buddhist ethic. They have something else in mind. And in practical terms, this is not a fruitful line, you know, the kind of Buddhist, Benetarian, negative utilitarian, suffering-focused ethics. Essentially, that one wants to be kind of ratcheting up hedonic range, hedonic set points in the way that you're conserving people's existing preferences, even though their existing preferences and values are in many cases in conflict with each other. Now, how one actually implements this in a classical digital computer or a classical connectionist system or some kind of hybrid, I don't know precisely. At least one pretty famous cognitive scientist and AI theorist does propose the, <laughs> the Buddhist ethic of turning the, the off button of the universe. 
Thomas Metzinger and his benevolent artificial antinatalism. I mean, yeah, actually, that's pretty interesting because he explores, you know, the idea of an AI that truly kind of extrapolates human values and, and what's good for us as subject of experience. And the AI concludes what we are psychologically unable to, which is that the ethical choice is non-existence. But yeah, I mean, I think like that's, as David pointed out, implausible. I think it's much better to put our efforts in creating a super cooperator cluster that tries to recalibrate the hedonic set point so that we are animated by gradients of bliss. Sociological constraints are really, really important here. Otherwise, you risk being irrelevant. Being irrelevant, yeah, is one thing. The other thing is unleashing an ineffective or failed attempt at sterilizing the world, which would be so much, much worse. I don't agree with this view, David, generally. I think that Darwinian history has probably been net negative, but I'm extremely optimistic about how good the future can be. And so I think it's an open question at the end of time, how much misery and suffering and positive experience there was. So I guess I would say I'm agnostic as to this question, but if we get AI alignment right and these other things, then I think that it can be extremely good. And I just want to tether this back to identity and AI alignment I do have the, the strong intuition that if empty individualism is correct at an ontological level, then actually negative utilitarianism can be pretty strongly defended on the grounds that when you have a moment of intense suffering, that's the entirety of that entity's existence. And especially with eternalism, once it happened, there's nothing you can do to prevent it. There's something that seems particularly awful about allowing inherently negative experiences to just exist. That said, I think like open individualism actually may to some extent weaken that because even if the suffering was very intense, you can still imagine that if you identify with consciousness as a whole, you may be willing to undergo some bad suffering as a trade-off for something much, much better in the future. This sounds completely insane if you're currently experiencing a cluster headache or something astronomically painful, but maybe from the point of view of eternity, it actually makes sense. Those are still tiny specks of experience relative to the bliss that is going to exist in the future. You can imagine Jupiter brains and Dyson spheres just in a constant ecstatic state. So I think open individualism might counterbalance some of the negative utilitarian worries and would be something that a AI would have to contemplate and might push it one way or the other. So let's go ahead and expand the definition of AI alignment. A broader way we can look at the AI alignment problem or the problem of generating beneficial AI and making future AI stuff go well, where that is understood as the project of making sure that the technical, political, social, and moral consequences of short term to superintelligence and beyond is that like as we go through all of that, that is a beneficial process. Thinking about identity in that process, we were talking about how strong nationalism or strong identity or identification with regards to a nation state is a form of identity construction that people do. The nation or the country becomes part of self. One of the problems of the AI alignment problem is arms racing between countries and so taking shortcuts on safety. I'm not trying to propose clear answers or solutions here. It's unclear how successful an intervention here could even be. But these views on identity and how much nationalism shifts or not, I think, feed into how difficult or not the problem will be. The point of game theory becomes very, very important in that, yes, you do want to help other people who are also trying to improve the well-being of all consciousness. On the other hand, um, 
if there is a way to fake caring about the entirety of consciousness, that is a problem because then you would be using resources on people who would hoard them or, or even worse, wrestle the power away from you so that they can focus on their narrow sense of identity. In that sense, I think having technologies in order to set particular phenomenal experiences of identity, as well as to be able to detect them, might be super important. But above all, and I mean, this is definitely my area of research, having a way of objectively quantifying how good or bad a state of consciousness is based on the activity of a, of a nervous system seems to me like an extraordinarily key component for any kind of a serious AI alignment. If you're actually trying to prevent bad scenarios in the future, you've got to have a principal way of knowing whether the outcome is bad, or at the very least, knowing whether the outcome is terrible. The aligned AI should be able to grasp that a certain state of consciousness, even if nobody has experienced it before, will be really bad, and it should be avoided. That tends to be the lens through which I see this. In terms of uh, improving people's internal self-consistency, as David pointed out, I think it's kind of pointless to try to satisfy a lot of people's preferences, such as having their favorite sports team win, because there's really just no way of satisfying everybody's preferences. In the realm of psychology is where a lot of these interventions would happen. You can't expect an AI to be aligned with you if you yourself are not aligned with yourself. Right, if, if you have all of these strange, psychotic, competing sub-agents. So it seems like part of the process is going to be developing techniques to become more consistent so that we can actually be helped. In terms of risks this century, I mean, nationalism has been responsible for most of the wars of the past two centuries, and nationalism is highly likely to lead to catastrophic war this century. And the underlying global catastrophic risk, I don't think, is AI. It's male human primates doing what male human primates do, as designed by evolution to fight, to compete, to wage war, and even vegan pacifists like me, how do we spend our leisure time playing violent video games? I mean, there are technical ways one can envisage mitigating the risk. I mean, it's perhaps unduly optimistic, aiming for all-female governance or aiming for a democratically accountable world state under the auspices of the United Nations. But I think unless one actually does have somebody with a monopoly on the use of force, that essentially we are going to have cataclysmic nuclear war this century. It's highly likely. I think we're sleepwalking our way towards disaster, that it's more intellectually exciting and interesting discussing exotic risk, you know, from AI that goes foom or something like that. But there is much more mundane catastrophes that are, I suspect are going to unfold this century. All right. So getting into this other part here about AI alignment and beneficial AI throughout this next century, there's a lot of different things that increased intelligence and capacity and power over the world is going to enable. There's going to be human biological species divergence via AI-enabled bioengineering. There is this fundamental desire for immortality in many people. And the drive towards superintelligence and beyond for some people promises immortality. I think that in terms of closed individualism here, closed individualism is extremely motivating for this extreme self-concern and desire for immortality. There are people currently today who are investing in, say, like cryonics because they want to freeze themselves and make it long enough so that they can somehow become immortal, very clearly influenced by their ideas of identity. 
as you've all know, Harari was saying on our last podcast, it subverts many of the classic liberal myths that we have about the same intrinsic worth across all people. And then if you add humans 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0 into the mixture, it's going to subvert that even more. So there are important questions of identity there, I think. With sufficiently advanced superintelligence, people flirt with the idea of being uploaded. The identity questions here, which are relevant, are if we scan the information architecture, the neural architecture of your brain and upload it, will people feel like that is them? Is it not them? What does it mean to be you? Also, of course, in scenarios where people want to merge with the AI, what is it that you would want to be kept in the merging process? What is superfluous to you? What is not non-essential to your identity or what it means to be you that you would be okay or not with merging? And then I think that most importantly here, I'm very interested in the descendants scenario where we just view AI as like our evolutionary descendants. There's this tendency in humanity to not be okay with this descendants scenario because of closed individualist views on identity. They won't see that consciousness as the same kind of thing or they won't see it as their own consciousness. They see that well-being like through the lens of self and other. So that makes people like less interested in there being descendant, super intelligent, conscious AIs. Maybe there's also a bit of speciesism in there. I wonder if you guys want to have any reactions to identity in any of these processes. Again, they are human biological species divergence via AI-enabled bioengineering, immortality, uploads, merging, or the descendants scenario. In spite of thinking that uh, Darwinian life is sentient malware, I think chronic should be opt-out and cryothanasia should be opt-in as a way to defang death. And so long as someone is suspended in optimal conditions, it ought to be possible for advanced intelligence to reanimate that person. And sure, if one is an empty individualist or you're the kind of person who wakes up in the morning troubled that you're not the kind of the person who went to sleep last night, this may not really be you. But if you're more normal, yes, I think it should be possible to reanimate you if you are suspended. In terms of mind uploads, this is back to the binding problem, even assuming that you can be uh, scanned with a moderate degree of fidelity. I don't think your notional digital counterpart is a uh, subject to experience. Even if I am completely uh, wrong here and that somehow subjects of experience inexplicably emerge in classical digital computers, there's no guarantee that the qualia would be the same. After all, you can replay a game of chess with perfect fidelity, but there's no guarantee incidentals like the textures of the pieces will be the same. Why expect the textures of qualia to be the same? But that isn't really my objection. It's the fact that uh, a digital computer cannot support phenomenally bound subjects of experience. I also think cryonics is really good, even though with a different non-standard view of uh, personal identity, it's kind of like puzzling. Like, why would you care about it? Lots of practical considerations. I like what they've said of like defanging death. I think that's a good idea, but also giving people skin in the game for the future. You know, people who enact policy and become, you know, politically successful often tend to be 50 years plus. And there's a lot of things that they wait on that they will not actually get to experience that probably biases politicians and people who are enacting policy to focus especially just on short-term gains as opposed to really generally trying to improve the long-term. And I think cryonics would be helpful in giving people skin into game. 
more broadly speaking, it does seem to be the case that what aspect of transhumanism a person is likely to focus on depends a lot on their theories of identity. I mean, if we break down transhumanism into the three supers of super happiness, super longevity, and super intelligence, the longevity branch is pretty large. There's a lot of people looking for ways of rejuvenating, preventing aging, and reviving ourselves, or even uploading ourselves. Then there's people who are very, very interested in super intelligence. I think that's probably the most popular type of transhumanism nowadays. That one, I think, does rely to some extent on people having a functionalist, information-theoretic account of their own identity. You know, there's all of these tropes of, hey, if you leave a, a large enough digital footprint <laughs> online, a superintelligence will be able to reverse engineer your brain just from that and maybe like reanimate you in the future or something of that nature. And then there's, yeah, people like David and I and Qualia Research Institute as well that care primarily about super happiness. We think of it as kind of a requirement for a future that is actually worth living. You can have all the longevity and all the intelligence you want, but if you're not happy, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't really see the point. A lot of the concerns with longevity, fear of death, and so on, in retrospect, I think will be probably considered some kind of a neurosis, you know, obviously a genetically adaptive neurosis, but something that can be cured with mood-enhancing technologies. Leveraging human selfishness or leveraging how most people are closed individualists seems like the way to having good AI alignment. To one extent, I find the immortality pursuits through cryonics to be pretty elitist. But I think it's a really good point that giving the policymakers and the older generation and people in power more skin in the game over the future is both potentially very good and also very scary. It's very scary to the extent to which they could get absolute power, but also very good if you're able to mitigate risks of them developing absolute power. But again, as you said, it motivates them towards more deeply and profoundly considering future considerations, being less myopic, being less selfish, so that getting the AI alignment process right and doing the necessary technical work, it's not done for short-term nationalistic gain. Again, with an asterisk here that the risk is unilaterally getting more and more power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also without cryonics, another way to increase skin in the game may be more straightforwardly positive. Bliss technologies do that. A lot of people who are depressed or nihilistic or vengeful or misanthropic, they don't really care about destroying the world or watching it burn, so to speak, because they don't have anything to lose. But if you have a really reliable MDMA-like technological device that reliably produces wonderful states of consciousness, I think people will be much more careful about preserving their own health but, and also not watch the world burn because they know I could be back home and actually experiencing this rather than just trying to satisfy my misanthropic desires. Yeah, so the happiest people I know work in the field of existential risk. And rather than great happiness making people reckless, it can also make them more inclined to conserve and protect. Awesome. I guess just one more thing that I wanted to hit on these different ways that technology is going to change society is, I don't know, in my heart, the ideal is the vow to liberate all sentient beings in all directions from suffering. The closed individualist view seems generally fairly antithetical to that. But there's also this desire for me to be realistic about leveraging that human selfishness towards that ethic. The capacity here for conversations on identity going forward 
if we can at least give people more information to subvert or challenge or give them information about why the common sense closed individualist view might be wrong, I think it would just have a ton of implications for how people end up viewing human species divergence or immortality or uploads or merging or the descendants scenario. In Max's book, Life 3.0, he describes a bunch of different scenarios for how you want the world to be as the impact of AI grows, if we're lucky enough to reach super intelligent AI. These scenarios that he gives are, for example, in egalitarian utopia where humans, cyborgs, and uploads coexist peacefully thanks to property, abolition, and guaranteed income. There's a libertarian utopia where human cyborgs and uploads and superintelligences coexist peacefully thanks to property rights. There is a protector god scenario where essentially omniscient and omnipotent AI maximizes human happiness by intervening only in ways that preserve our feeling of control of our own destiny and hides well enough that many humans even doubt the AI's existence. There's enslaved God, which is kind of self-evident. The AI is a slave to our will. A descendant scenario, which I described earlier, where AIs replace human beings, but give us a graceful exit, making us view them as our worthy descendants, much as parents feel happy and proud to have a child who's smarter than them, who learns from them, and then accomplishes what they could only dream of even if they can't live to see it. So after the book was released, Max did a survey of which ideal societies people were most excited about. And basically most people wanted either the egalitarian utopia or the libertarian utopia. These are very human-centric, of course, because I think most people are closed individualists. So like, okay, they're going to pick that. And then they wanted a protector god next. And then the fourth most popular was an enslaved god The fifth most popular was Descendants. I'm a very big fan of the Descendants scenario. Maybe it's because of my empty individualism. I just feel here that as views on identity are like quite uninformed for most people, most people don't take it, or closed individualism just seems intuitively true from the beginning because it seems like it's been selected for mostly by Darwinian evolution to have a very strong sense of self. I just think that challenging conventional views on identity will very much shift the kinds of worlds that people are okay with or the kinds of worlds that people want. Like if we had like a big massive public education campaign about the philosophy of identity and then take the same survey later, I think that the numbers would be much more different. That seems to be like a necessary part of the education of humanity in the process of beneficial AI and AI alignment. To me, the descendant scenario just seems best because it's more clearly in line with this ethic of being impartially devoted to maximizing the well-being of sentience everywhere. I'm curious to know your guys' reaction to these different scenarios about how you feel views on identity as they shift will inform the kinds of worlds that humanity finds beautiful or meaningful or like worthy of pursuit through and with AI. Starting with the most obvious that I focus on, if today's hedonic range is minus 10 to 0 to plus 10, yes, building a civilization with a hedonic range of plus 70 to plus 100, one wants more contrast, or plus 90 to a plus 100. The multiple phase changes in consciousness involved there are just completely inconceivable to humans. 
But in terms of full-spectrum superintelligence, what we don't know is the radically alien state spaces of consciousness. I mean, far more different than, let's say, dreaming consciousness and waking consciousness that I suspect that we are going to uh, explore. And we currently, we just do not have the language or the concepts to conceptualize what these alien state spaces are like, I suspect millions, billions of years of exploration lie ahead. I assume that a central element will be the pleasure axis, that they will be generically wonderful, but they will be completely alien. And so talk of uh, identity with primitive Darwinian malware like us is quite fanciful. Consider the following thought experiment where you have a chimpanzee right next to a person who is right next to another person where the third one is currently on a high dose of DMT combined with uh, ketamine and salvia. If you consider those three entities, I think very likely, actually, the experience of the chimpanzee and the experience of the sober person are very much alike compared to the person who's on DMT, ketamine, salvia, who is in a completely different alien state space of consciousness. And in some sense, biologically unrelatable from the point of view of, of the qualia and the sense of self and time and space and all of those things. So personally, I think having intimations with alien state spaces of consciousness is actually also quite apart from like changes in a feeling that you become one with the universe. Merely having experience with like really different states of consciousness makes it easier for you to identify with consciousness as a whole. You realize, okay, like my DMT self, so to speak, cannot exist naturally. And it's just like so much different to who I am normally and even more different than perhaps being a chimpanzee that you could imagine caring as well about like alien state spaces of consciousness that are completely non-human. And I think that it can be pretty helpful. The other reason why I give a lot of credence to open individualism being a winning strategy even just from a purely political and sociological point of view, is that open individualists are not afraid of changing their own state of consciousness because they realize that it will be them either way. Whereas closed individualists can actually be pretty scared of, for example, taking DMT or something like that. They tend to have at least the suspicion that, oh my gosh, is the person who's going to be on DMT me? Am I going to be there? Or maybe I'm just being possessed by a different entity with completely different values and uh, consciousness. No matter what type of consciousness your brain generates, it's going to be you. It massively amplifies the degrees of freedom for coordination. Plus, you're not afraid of tuning your consciousness for particular new computational uses. Again, this could be extremely powerful as a cooperation and coordination tool. To summarize, I think a plausible and very nice future scenario is going to be the mixture of open individualism on the one hand, second, generically enhanced hedonic tone, so that everything is amazing, and third, expanded range of possible experiences, that we will have the tools to experience pretty much arbitrary state spaces of consciousness and consider them our own. The descendant scenario, I think it's much easier to imagine thinking of the new entities as your offspring if you can at least know what they feel like. You know, you can take a drug or something and know, okay, this is what it's like to be a post-human android. I like it. This is wonderful. It's better than being a human. That would make it plausible.
Wonderful. So this last question is just the role of identity in the AI itself or the superintelligence itself as it experiences the world, the ethical implications of those identity models, etc. There is the question of identity now, and if we get aligned superintelligence and post-human superintelligence and we have Jupiter brains or Dyson spheres or whatever, the, there's the question of identity evolving in that system. We are very much creating life 3.0, and there is a substantive question of what kind of identity views it will take, what its phenomenal experience of self or not will have. This all is relevant and important because if we're concerned with maximizing conscious well-being, then these are flavors of consciousness, which would require a sufficiently rigorous science of consciousness to understand their valence properties. I mean, I think it's a really, really good thing to think about. The overall frame I tend to utilize to analyze these kind of questions is, I wrote an article, you can find it in Quality Computing, that it's called Consciousness versus Replicators. I think that is a pretty good overarching ethical framework where basically I described how different kinds of ethics can give different worldviews, but also they depend on your philosophical sophistication. The very beginning, you have like ethics such as the battle between good and evil, but then you start introspecting on like, okay, what is evil exactly? And you realize that nobody sets out to do evil from the very beginning. Usually they actually have motivations that make sense within their own experience. Then you shift towards this other theory that's called the balance between good and evil, super common in Eastern religions. Also, people who take a lot of psychedelics or meditate a lot tend to arrive to that view as in like, oh, don't be too concerned about suffering or the universe. It's all a huge yin and yang. The evil part makes the good part better or like weird things like that. Then you have a little bit more developed what I call gradients of wisdom. I would say like Sam Harris and definitely a lot of people in our community think that way, which is they come to the realization that, you know, there are societies that don't help human flourishing and there are, you know, ideologies that do. And it's really important to be discerning. We can't just say, hey, everything is equally good. But finally, I would say the fourth level would be consciousness versus replicators, which involves one, taking open individualism seriously. And second, realizing that anything that matters, it matters because it influences experiences. If you have that as your underlying ethical principle, there's like this danger of replicators hijacking our motivational architecture in order to pursue their own replication, independent of the well-being of sentience. And you guard for that. I think you're in a pretty good space to actually do a lot of good. I would say perhaps that is the sort of ethics or morality we should Think about how to instantiate in artificial intelligence. In the extreme, you have what I call a pure replicator. And a pure replicator essentially is a system or an entity that uses all of its resources exclusively to make copies of itself, independently of whether that causes good or bad experiences elsewhere. It just doesn't care. I would argue that humans are not pure replicators, that in fact, we do care about consciousness, at the very least, our own consciousness. And evolution is recruiting the fact that we care about consciousness in order to, as a side effect, increase our inclusive fitness of our genes. But these discussions we're having right now, this is the possibility of post-human ethic is the genie is getting out of the bottle in the sense of consciousness is kind of taking its own values and trying to transcend the selfish genetic process that gave rise to it. Ooh, I like that. That's good. Anything to add, David? 
No, uh, I simply uh, hope we have a Buddhist AI. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> All right. So I've really enjoyed this conversation. I feel more confused now than when I came in, which is very good. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you both so much for coming on. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give it a like, or share it on your preferred social media platform. We'll be back again soon with another episode in the AI Alignment series.